Thank you so much, Doug. Thanks, thanks for all, all you did setting this up. Um, so hello, everybody. Um, uh, welcome to uh, consumer uh, debt defenses and uh, small claims cases. Uh, that is pretty much all, uh, most, of, most if not all, of what we are going to be talking about today. Um, we are going to uh, go into a little bit of the background around small claims uh, debt collection, which makes up a large portion of the civil docket in Massachusetts. Um, we'll also talk about sub substantive defenses to debt collection suits um, and also some of the logistics of Zoom hearings and whatnot. Um, but first, uh, just to introduce folks who are on, on our panel today, um, I'm Colin Harnsgate. I'm a staff attorney with Volunteer Lawyers Project in our consumer bankruptcy and housing units. I'm Tallulah Kanop. I'm a staff attorney at VLP in the consumer and employment units. And then I'm Kat Harris. I'm the paralegal with Tallulah in the consumer and wage and hour units. Mongyang, go ahead. Uh, hi, I'm Mongyang Yang. I'm, I'm a former intern at VLP Consumer Unit, and I'm coming back for our mock hearing later to uh, play as the client. That's, that's a great reminder. I forgot to mention we are doing a mock hearing at the, at the end of the presentation to show you kind of what one of these uh, looks like. Um, Tallulah, are you, are you sharing your screen? So I will start sharing now. Let's see. Hmm. Can people see that? Yeah. We see it well. Okay. So just uh, let me know, Colin, when you want it to move to the next slide. You got it. Um, so if you ever need to uh, contact uh, Tulluck, Catherine or I, um, our contact information is here at the uh, front page of this um, slide. Um, I suppose at some point in the presentation, we could also uh, put our emails in the chat just for folks who are uh, interested in contacting us. If you have any questions that you want to ask us after the uh, after the training, and uh, we would be more than happy to answer them. Um, so uh, let's go to the next slide. Whoops. All right, so uh, we are gonna be talking about the uh, little bit of background about the collection industry, what small claims court looks like. Uh, we're also going to be um, uh, talking about the substantive law, logistics of Zoom hearings now that we are um, all remote and the courts are working mo re mostly remotely. Um, and uh, then at the end, we are going to do a short mock hearing to show you what a, a small claims case uh, or trial looks like in small claims court. Next slide. So we think a good place to start off is to define uh, what, what we think is uh, what debt collection is um, in our experience. And this, uh, I think this, this definition that we've kind of come up with isn't, uh, is maybe partly uh, taken from uh, statutes on the federal and state level and, and, and regulations that govern uh, debt collection. Um, 
but this is what we've come up with. So debt collection is the sending of letters, emails, texts, making of phone calls, filing of litigation by a creditor for the purpose of collecting money or attaching real or personal property like a house, car, bank account, or wages uh, to pay off a debt owed by the consumer to that specific creditor that is doing the collection activity. And as a note here, the number of debt lawsuits as a share of civil case loads has doubled in the last 20 years. Um, and the last number I saw that they made up about 60% uh, of the civil docket uh, in Massachusetts. So uh, in Massachusetts, about 23% of the population have a debt in collection. Um, this uh, number is larger in non-white areas. It's a very uh, large problem in Massachusetts and across the country. Um, and we're gonna talk about that soon in the presentation or a um, little bit down the road about um, just how much of a problem this is and um, what people are dealing with out there. So this is um, a table showing the life of a debt um, most of the small claims cases that we do are, un, are is unsecured debt, um, meaning they're not meaning they don't they're not backed up by any sort of collateral like a house or a car. We see that every once in a while on the civil docket, but for small claims case, it's mostly uh, credit cards, credit cards, and credit cards. Um, I don't know total anything else. I mean that's pretty much I mean there's also subrogation which is uh, some insurance cases but for the most part it's credit cards so um yeah with the only slight distinction being sometimes we'll see um, a store card which is a, a credit card that might be limited to use only at that store that it was open for example Best Buy or TJ Maxx but it's backed by um by a, a, a bank and and um like any other credit card yeah, great, great, great point. True. Um, and I imagine we probably see more of those than we often um, realize, although I know they've been becoming less common. Um, so what when a debt is created, um, well, if you go to the left here, it's paid in full. That's it. That's great. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, folks who we see in small claims court, um, they are generally there because uh, the debt is not paid in full and they've either missed, missed payments or they defaulted and their card has been charged off and now they are being uh, sued for it. Um, so if we go down the unsecured uh, lane here, which is generally, again, what we see in small claims court, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens in these cases uh, before uh, Tallulah, Catherine and I uh, meet our clients and before our volunteers meet our clients. Um, often before we've met them, uh, the original creditor um, has uh, sent them billing statements. Uh, these are generally standard credit card statements sent to the consumer's email or uh, physical copies have been sent to their address. Um, and these billing statements have um, a lot of information on them. They have the balance that the consumer um, supposedly owes. Uh, they, they list any payments that were recently made, any purchases that were made that month. Um, and then of course they have the consumer's address um, and uh, account information on them as well. Um, 
so the consumer usually receive these, receives these statements and um, the original creditor, let's say uh, this is a bank, let, let's just say it's like Capital One, uh, which is a common plaintiff in debt collection cases. And a lot of people, including myself, have a card with Capital One. Um, they will send people billing statements. And uh, if the person does not pay up, um, after a certain amount of time, that account uh, may go to uh, a collections agency. Now, the original creditor, like Capital One or Bank of America, uh, they will still own the debt at this point. It's just they've hired another party to do a lot of the collection activity on their behalf. Uh, so uh, the consumer will generally get phone calls and letters from this new collection agency, and it can get a little bit confusing for the consumer because uh, they may not be sure at this point really who they're supposed to pay money to. Um, we've encountered situations where uh, the person has paid uh, the original creditor directly rather than going through uh, the debt collector to make payments. And sometimes the payments take a little while to catch up for the consumer to stop receiving collection letters and um, phone calls anymore. So um, if that doesn't work, if the consumer still doesn't pay uh, their debt, uh, well, um, the account will get charged off and a couple different things can uh, happen at this point. Um, if, the, if the account is charged off, uh, sometimes the original creditor will then hire a debt collection law firm uh, to start sending letters uh, to the client. Or the original creditor will um, uh, sell the debt to a third party debt buyer giving up all of the original creditor's rights to collect on that debt. And now that debt belongs to this third party debt buyer or debt purchaser. And often that debt buyer, like the original creditor, will hire um, a collection law firm that will also send notices to the consumer and call them uh, to try to get them to make payments. And then if, that, if no payments are made and there's still an outstanding debt, um, this is where uh, we usually meet clients, which is um, they're being sued for the debt. And we've seen uh, most, I, I'd say most of the cases we see uh, are fairly small. They're less than $2,000, although, you know, we've seen them as low as $500 and as high as like $30,000. Uh, just depends on how big the debt was. Uh, of course, for secured debts, uh, there's there's a lot more that happens and there's uh, a equally sort of complicated uh, procedure um, that creditors have to go through in order to collect from consumers. Um, if the creditor wants to do a uh, repossession, they have to follow state law um, in order to do that repossession. Uh, the consumer can uh, redeem or reinstate the debt or there's a repossession um, or there's a repossession sale um, like with a car. And if there's, uh, if there's a deficiency, uh, often that deficiency will go to a collection law firm that will do a similar process as unsecured debt by sending the consumer letters, uh, making phone calls, and then likely um, suing them eventually. Now, if for an unsecured debt um, or, or for a secured debt, a judgment is obtained. That judgment is good for 20 years. And then there are a variety of post-judgment remedies that the creditor can take uh, to collect on, on that debt. Uh, next slide. 
So as we explained before, there are numerous parties involved in debt collection. Um, let's, let's actually start at the bottom on this slide. So there's the original creditor. This is the company, and these, these are the banks that people generally know about, Capital One, Bank of America, TD Bank. Uh, they extend credit or provide goods or services on credit to consumers. Uh, if the consumer defaults on payments, original creditors may attempt to collect the debts in-house, place the debts with a collection agency, or sell the debts uh, to a third-party debt purchaser. And again, once they sell the debt to the debt buyer, that's it. The original creditor doesn't have the right to collect on the debt anymore. Debt collection agencies are, are different from debt buyers. They are collecting the debt either for debt buyers or for the original creditors, and they're typically paid a percentage of the amount collected. Um, and debt buyers are other companies that purchase portfolios of debt for generally pennies on the dollar. Uh, they attempt to collect the debt in-house or by hiring debt collection agencies, and they sometimes resell the debt if the collection is unsuccessful. Um, and every time a sale happens of a debt, generally the, the last debt buyer in the chain, if there's been numerous assignments, uh, generally doesn't have um, as good of documentation of the debt as the original creditor or the first debt buyer in the chain. Um, collection attorneys are attorneys that uh, we often deal with in these cases, and we we are uh, we see them in small claims court. We email with them, have phone calls with them all the time, and uh, that works in uh, they work in private law firms or in house for other debt collectors, and use a variety of methods to collect debts, including filing lawsuits uh, in state courts. And I think somebody just asked a question, and what we'll do is I think Tolo will get to questions at the beginning, of, at the end of this segment. And I think I saw something about standing in the comment, which is I know one of the things we're going to get to later, because um, I'm glad that sort of went off in somebody's head. Um, but we'll we'll get to your questions at the end of the segment. So the common debt by oh sorry next slide Tolo. So the common debt buyers that we see in small claims cases, uh, this is them, um, Midland Funding, Portfolio Recovery, LVNV, Cavalry, Waterfront, Cash, Crown Asset, Champion, Unifund, Jefferson Capital. This is not an exhaustive list. I think these, these are just the eight or so, nine or so debt buyers that we see the most in these cases. Um, and something like, I forget the exact number, we don't have it in the presentation, but um, the 10 debt buyers, nine or 10 debt buyers um, filed a huge percentage of, of uh, civil debt collection cases um, in, around, or in 2015. Um, and like I said before, small claims debt collection and civil docket debt collection make up about 60% of the civil docket in Massachusetts. Um, I think before I started doing debt collection, I sort of figured, well, what's on the civil docket. It's like maybe personal injury, med mal, uh, what other, whatever other civil litigation there is out there, but it's mostly debt collection as we found out through doing our Lawyer for the Day programs. Uh, next slide. Uh, common original creditors we see in debt collection cases, and these probably look pretty familiar to most of you. Bank of America, Discover Bank, Capital One, TD Bank, 
uh, the last three or, or credit one and then Comenity and Synchrony are often um, uh, finance companies behind uh, store cards that we see. Um, Walmart, TJ Maxx, uh, Home Depot, May Macy's, Macy's, maybe not Macy's, but um, a few other ones too. I'd say like Home Depot, TJ Maxx, and Walmart are big ones. What am I missing, Tolola? Uh, did you say Best Buy? Yeah. Oh, I didn't say Best Buy. Best Buy is yeah. a big one. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big one. Um, Buy a TV, put it on the card, finance it. Right. They do the tar TV, I think, does the Target cards. Right, right. But at, at Best Buy, you know, you purchase a TV or something like a big purchase and it's it, it, you can, it can be um, appealing to, you know, open a card to, to pay that yeah. down. All right, next slide. Okay, so this is some of the data that I was, I briefly touched on earlier about what the problem of debt collection is. So in Massachusetts, nine debt buyers represented 43% of civil and small claims caseloads in 2015. So again, this isn't, that's not 43% of debt collection cases. That's 43% of all civil cases in 2015, just nine debt buyers. And I imagine it was most of the ones we showed on the previous slide. 87% um, of consumers uh, default in their Massachusetts small claims case. Of course, what that means is they don't show up. And because they don't show up, uh, the clerk or um, or the judge will enter a default judgment against them and they lose the case. Of course, they can then come back and seek to vacate that default judgment if they had a good reason for not being in court. Uh, but, uh, and, and we certainly help people with that, but oftentimes they, they, they don't do that. And the first time they find out about a small claims case is when they realize at some point that there's a judgment against them. Um, Non-white people are roughly two times more likely to uh, default in a collection case in Massachusetts. 95% um, of people with default judgments for debt live in low to moderate income neighborhoods. The Massachusetts post-judgment interest rate is 12%, which is a um, very large number and will cause these chief default judgments to grow uh, quite quickly. Uh, next slide. So in Massachusetts, where are debt collection cases pursued? Uh, they are uh, pursued on the civil docket, but the civil docket, uh, they're pursued in two different courts on the civil docket. One is in the regular civil session. This is the regular civil session that you think of when you think of district court, Boston Municipal Court, or Superior Court. Um, but the Boston Municipal Court and the district court also have separate small claims sessions. And um, this is where I think the majority of debt collection cases are filed. But if they're big enough, if they're for a large enough amount of money, the debt collector or the creditor can file on the civil docket uh, and not in small claims. Next slide. So in Massachusetts courts, uh, again, this number, 60% of the civil docket is debt collection cases. Uh, the number increases in the small claim session. It's much more, I would say, I mean, depending on the court, but I think 
80% maybe, if not, if not more. So uh, next. And, and that's a real, you know, that that's a strategic choice of the debt um, collectors or plaintiffs are making by filing in small claims. Um, you know, and we'll get to, we'll get to some of this later, but there's relaxed rules of evidence. There's, their discovery isn't as, isn't a right in small claims. So there, there's lots of procedural, um, procedural obstacles that they're, they're avoiding by filing in small claims, which traditionally is meant to be a, a, a forum for two unrepresented litigants to, to work out their differences. And instead you have um, a corporation represented by an attorney um, suing vast majority, I think like over 95% unrepresented individuals. Uh, next slide. All right, so small claims court um, is, is a different thing than, than regular civil court. And um, I think what, what we've found from our volunteers is it's kind of funny because a lot of our volunteers have practiced uh, for years on the civil, in the civil session, they're used to um, pretty firm rules as far as procedure goes and um, rules of evidence. And then they come to small claims court and it's kind of like, well, everything gets into evidence and you just kind of make fairness arguments and also legal, uh, legal arguments as well. But um, this is due to the nature of the small claims rules, which are like the rules of civil procedure for small claims court. But what the small claims rules say is that other rules of court, like the traditional rules of civil procedure and the rules of evidence, uh, they're not applicable in small claims court. And I believe it's rule seven of the small claims rules, which says that the clerk or the judge presiding over the small claims case can kind of run the trial as they want, uh, as long as they're uh, looking out for fairness of both parties and um, making sure that nobody's getting railroaded. Um, jurisdiction in small claims is $7,000 or below. So if the claim is more than that, can't, can't file in small claims. Um, plaintiffs waive the right to appeal in small claims court. So this is important also for people who are asserting counterclaims in these cases, because a counterclaim, of course, means you're the plaintiff in counterclaim. And if you lose on your counterclaim, you can't appeal that. Um, however, uh, if a defendant loses a small claims case, generally our clients, um, consumers, they can appeal if they lose. And when they appeal, it doesn't go to the appeal, appeals court or the appellate division, it goes to um, a judge or a jury on the civil docket. So there's no formal um, service in small claims court. Um, what essentially happens is the plaintiff will go to the courthouse or send a bunch of uh, documents to the courthouse. And uh, this is called the statement of small claim, which is like the complaint in uh, small claims cases. And the statement of small claim has several carbon copies. Uh, one copy goes to the creditor's attorney, uh, one copy stays with the court, and one copy then gets mailed by first class mail, not by the plaintiff, but by um, by the, by the clerk's office, I believe, to the defendant. And um, after the plaintiff gives the court the defendant's address. And the uh, defendant will then get their statement of small claim and notice of trial in the mail. And this is, we call this the blue sheet because the carbon copy that it's on is blue. And it has a lot of good information on it. 
names of the parties, damages, and a few sentences about what the case is about. Um, it is not necessary for the defendant to file an answer in small claims court. They don't default if they don't file an answer. All they have to do is show up. They can file an answer, but they don't. They don't have to. Um, for those of you who do summary process, it's similar to similar in that way. You don't have to file an answer. You just show up. All right. Next slide. So, in small claims court, the vast majority of the time, a clerk magistrate is presiding over the hearings. The clerk magistrate is not a judge, but they are usually a lawyer, although not always. Every once in a while, you'll see a judge step in if the case is weird or something. Um, but again, the rules of evidence and procedure are relaxed. Um, parties can get discovery, but only for good cause. It's worth pointing out here that uh, we, we are able generally in consumer debt cases to get discovery in our cases. Um, this is, I think, largely due to the fact that um, our clients and the creditor's attorneys are generally uh, open and, and, and eager, if it's possible, to resolve a case. And the best way from our perspective to be able to resolve a case is to want to look at the documents that the creditor has brought with them to court that they intend to introduce at trial. Although I think they do have an argument that under the small claims rules, they, they're not required uh, to show us that um, uh, before, before the hearing. On the other hand, I think it's possible under Rule 7, under the small claims rules, that if the court wants to run the trial in a fair way and they have a lot of discretion under Rule 7, that they should, that they can require the collection attorney to share the, uh, the documents with, with the consumer and the consumer's counsel. Um, but either way, it's not an issue we run into often. Um, I think as a, as a um, just kind of a rule of professional courtesy. Um, I think um, uh, most collection attorneys will share it with us. And um, it's a good way for us to be able to look at the documents and, and, and advise our clients about their uh, potential defenses. So, um, and then of course, if we see the documents and they're really, really good documents and there's not really a lot, a lot of defenses, it's a good way for the creditors to bring us to uh, a, a table to discuss settlement. Um, so he, uh, the rules of evidence and procedure are relaxed. Um, the small claims court is less standardized than the civil session. Uh, depending, on, depending on the clerk magistrate, uh, persuasive arguments may be more moral or fairness arguments as opposed to um, legal theories. Uh, now, of course, just because evidence and procedure are relaxed uh, doesn't mean the uh, clerks in, sitting in the small claims don't have to follow the law. Of course they, 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 of course they do. Um, but oftentimes it's worth making moral or fairness arguments uh, too. But it's also similar to the civil docket, I suppose. Um, if the plaintiff prevails at trial, the court will schedule a payment review hearing several months down the road um, to determine um, how much money the defendant should pay on the debt at that time. Uh, when we are in the civil session, which is um, not a lot these days, but um, we used to be, um, we generally saw two types of cases. Uh, one were suits in excess of $7,000, so just regular normal cases that were too big to be filed in small claims court, 
or suits on judgments, so wage garnishment cases. In those cases, a judgment had already entered against the consumer, and now the creditor is filing a separate case to collect, uh, to garnish their wages. Um, these are specifically called trustee process actions um, and is one of the means by which creditors can collect money. Um, and then of course, in a civil case, as many of you know, who've done civil litigation, um, once the complaint is served and filed, the consumer must file an answer or they default. There's no court date unless they file an answer, uh, unless there's some pre, like pre-trial, pre, uh, like, like maybe an ex parte motion to attach or something. But uh, generally in these cases, there's a case management conference, a motion to attach, summary judgment, pre-trial conference, and a bench or a jury trial. Uh, so when we are in the civil session and we're doing this remotely now too, uh, but we are mostly helping people with filing an answer, serving discovery. Um, often they come to us post-judgment in their wage garnishment case, and we help them with a motion to vacate the underlying judgment if it looks to us and the client like they may have not received proper notice of that case. Um, it just sort of depends. And often we have to go look at the file in the original court, uh, and it's a whole thing. But um, we've had some good success with vacating judgments where it's pretty clear that the person didn't, uh, didn't receive notice of the, of the original case. Uh, we also help clients with talking to the judge and opposing counsel and setting up a time uh, with consumers to answer the creditor's discovery requests with them. So I think these next two slides are a little different now, but we'll still go over them pretty quickly because I think it's important. Um, if you're volunteering with us, you want to be able to know what your client is up against, so you need to get the documents. Uh, and what that means is you need to ask the creditor's attorney uh, for, um, for the documents um, that they intend to introduce at trial. Um, before they will talk to you, you need to fill out something called a notice of limited appearance, which we'll talk a little more later, or a full appearance if you're entering a full appearance for the consumer. Um, request to see all documents that the creditor intends to introduce at trial, um, and then review the documents with your client. If it's an assigned debt case, your client generally will not have a lot of information for you about the assignment process, but they may be able to give you a lot of useful information about uh, the credit card statements that the, that the um, creditor has. So when consulting with your client, review all the charges on the statements with them um, and confirm that they made them, confirm that their address is correct. Um, you want to inform them around the law of collection proof status, which we're going to get into in a little bit. Um, oftentimes your clients will uh, be on public benefits of some sort like social security. Um, and you want to inform them of all options, whether they want to go to trial, do a settlement or continue the case for some reason. Uh, so when you're negotiating with opposing counsel, with the creditor's attorney, prior to negotiating with them, uh, you want to know your potential defenses, possibly counterclaims if they're like immediately apparent counterclaims, like the case was filed after the statute of limitations or something, um, and, and your client's financial situation. 
Um, if you are settling, ask for a private settlement agreement so no judgment will enter against your client. Uh, we have templates if you want to put it in writing, although I do, one, one weird thing about small claims is a lot of the private settlements we enter into at least now are just over email and it's a, my client is willing to pay um, uh, $500 on this $700 claim. They will pay it in $100 a month uh, installments and then you will dismiss the case with prejudice. Do you accept? And then the creditor's attorney will say, yes, we accept. There you have a binding contract. Um, or they will say, no, I don't accept, but we'll, we'll accept $600 at $100 a month. And that's good enough. It's in writing. Um, and then the case will get dismissed once, once that's over. Um, of course, if the client's income, if your client's income is from public assistance, you should ask opposing counsel to dismiss the case that day. And Tallulah is going to go into a little bit why in the next uh, portion of the training, um, which is on uh, the substantive law. And I think that's next. Um, but let's let's answer any questions that came up this this session, Tallulah, and then we'll maybe take a five minute break. That sounds good. Um, okay. I'm gonna stop sharing my screen for a moment because I can't see the questions if I don't. I see one. I see one question. Okay, let's um, read it. Sure. It says, uh, "Are there standing issues where a debt collection agency and not the original creditor brings the suit?" Um, generally, the debt. So the debt. Um, I, I think what you're asking in the question, and you feel free to type in another comment if if I'm not getting it correct. But I think what you're asking is, are there standing issues where a uh, debt where a debt buyer brings the suit or a purchaser of debt brings the suit instead of the original creditor? And the answer is yes, there are absolutely um, standing issues. Um, Tallulah is gonna go into this more in the next section about uh, what, uh, what debt buyers have to show in order to show that they have standing or that they're a real party in interest. Um, there's some pretty, um, I'd say fairly good law for consumers about what what creditors or what what debt buyers have to show in order to recover from consumers. Um, but if I misunderstood the question, and the question is debt collection agencies bringing cases, we generally don't see debt collection agencies like like third party servicers bringing cases on behalf of of. Uh, of, of creditors, it's usually it's usually either the original creditor or a debt buyer that they've sold, allegedly right. sold. Them to. So. Yeah, you're right, and yeah, nothing to add there. Um, I did just think of something, but it escapes me. Um, so, no other questions at this time. So we did get one um, asking if we're going to be able to send copies of slides to attendees. And sure. I don't have anybody's contact information, but you have and we can make them available again, um, but we'll make sure to get copies of slides to anyone who's interested. Yeah, and maybe we can send them um, to Doug to distribute to everyone who signed up. Um, that should be easy enough. Um, Okay. Oh, I never remember what I was going to say to Colin's point in answering that question. Oh, Doug says yes. Okay. <laughs> Doug <great>. says definitely. <laughs> um, 
in terms of just just piggybacking on what Colin was saying about, you know, there is pretty good case law out there regarding the standing question with with debt buyers. Um, the challenge is, especially in small claims, as we referenced before, a lot of the arguments that are persuasive in small claims court are sometimes more sort of moral or fairness arguments. And because the rules of evidence are more relaxed, if, if the clerk gets enough documentation that, you know, might not meet the legal threshold for standing, but feels like enough for that clerk, um, a hurdle we have is actually uh, prevailing sometimes on that that lack of standing argument, but I'll, I'll go through the details of how we make that that argument um, in the next few slides. So, there aren't any other questions. Oh, we're going to take a short break. Say like five minutes. Okay, five minute break. We'll see you back here in, in a few.
All right, so we'll we'll continue here. Hope everyone got some water and took a stretch. Um, we'll get through the rest of the slides and then take another short break before and answer any other questions before we jump into um, the mock the mock hearing. So getting into the substantive law here. So this is what the statement of small claims look like. And again, as a reminder, that is the actual complaint um, in, a, in small claims action. It's, as you can see, a lot less complicated or less thorough than a, than a civil complaint. Um, but it does, it does have a lot of information in this one, one sheet. Um, you'll see there that, that the middle section contains a couple sentences about the claim and it'll have um, information on who uh, the original creditor um, was, last four digits of the account number, um, the last payment, uh, date and amount of last payment, what the claim amount is, um, and then you'll have the attorney who, who is, is representing the uh, original creditor or the debt buyer. Um, you'll have your client's name, address and phone number, you want to verify with them that that's all accurate information. And this would have been the address that would have been used for service um, in the small claim session. You also have information about the, the opposing party and firm that's representing them. Um, and often, oftentimes with these cases, uh, coverage attorneys are actually the ones there at the day of hearing, and it might not be attorney of record on the case, and it might not be um, an attorney that's even in-house with the collection firm. Um, it's someone who's just there to, to answer plaintiff and hopefully get as many default judgments as, as they can. So sometimes that can be, um, that can cause a hurdle if you really are, are trying to make, uh, reach a settlement and, and they might not have, they might have to keep calling the office to call the client um, and go back and forth. But it's worth pushing on that if your client is really serious about coming to a settlement and, and is able to. Um, all right, so going through analyzing a debt collection case, these are the things that, this is a good checklist to have in your mind as you're interviewing your client, um, even before getting the, the documents from, from the other side. So who's the plaintiff? Is it an original creditor or a debt buyer? If it's an original creditor, it's gonna be one of those names that we all recognize, Bank of America, Capital One, Synchrony. If it's a debt buyer, it's gonna be one, if you volunteer with us a couple of times, you'll, you'll, you'll come to, to recognize quite quickly but um, it's gonna sound a bit unfamiliar if you're new to this area. Midland Funding, Portfolio Recovery Associates, LVNV, those are all debt buyers. And um, that's a really important first question because that's gonna dictate what your strategy is and, and what kind of defenses you have. We have more defenses, stronger defenses, if it's a debt buyer as opposed to the original creditor. Um, what is your client's income? Are they com collection proof? So um, in Massachusetts, under Massachusetts and federal law, um, certain income is exempt from collection, meaning 
a judgment can enter against an individual who is only earning exempt income, but they, the court can't order them to pay anything on it. They can make voluntary payments from exempt income, but there's no legal obligation on them to pay anything towards a judgment from those sources of income. And there, as you would imagine, there are many government benefits. So under the federal statute, it's social security, retirement insurance, disability insurance, pensions, um, uh, unemployment insurance, um, the temporary assistance for needy families, previously known as welfare, all that's exempt from collection. In addition, if your client is working and not receiving any government benefits, but, um, but they are earning below a certain gross wage per week, they are also exempt from collection. And we'll get into on a subsequent slide the, 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 the sites of those statutes and the, the details around the, the, the dollar amount that makes someone exempt. But this is something you want to know right at the beginning, what your client's financial situation is, because again, that's going to dictate your strategy. Um, and if they aren't collection proof, can they afford some sort of settlement and, and think about what, what they're able to afford? Are they able to afford a lump sum settlement, which very often allows us to settle for a much lower amount or is only uh, monthly payments possible for them? Does your client recognize the debt? You know, it doesn't happen very often, but sometimes there are identity theft or fraud situations and someone's opened the account um, using their, their, their name and their social security number. Um, and, and, and in that case, that certain, certain things have to happen, but then the, the plaintiff will, um, will generally dismiss the case once, once those things are, happen. But something that can get tricky here is sometimes the, it, it is an identity theft issue, but the, 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 the thief um, could be a close family member and clients don't always want to pursue um, stating an identity theft defense if that's the case. Um, is the client being harassed by the creditor? Lots of phone calls. Now, these are sometimes hard to prove, but it's good to get an idea of what the, the context of, of the collection on the debt is because the client may have some affirmative claims in that case under the um, Massachusetts Attorney General regulations on debt collection, as well as federal law um, on debt collection. In that same vein, where the client lives could potentially be, be a, an affirmative counterclaim or um, a defense. Are they being sued in the right court? Um, under federal law, these types of cases need to be brought in the smallest judicial district. And this is under the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. And we're really only talking about defenses in this um, training. So I'm not gonna get in too much detail on that, but um, being aware of, of these certain claims that your client may have provides really good um, leverage in terms of settling. And even if you don't bring the affirmative claim right there in the small claims session, because you're very much limited in, in, in your ability when you're meeting your client the day of their hearing, um, it can be a potential leverage tool to, to sort of dis, dismiss both, both claims. Um, and then finally, was the case brought within the statute of limitations? Obviously, this would be an affirmative defense if it was brought with outside the statute of limitations um, and a complete bar to recovery for the plaintiff. Now, um, it can get a little confusing when the statute of limitations 
begins. Um, generally speaking, and we'll talk more about this in more detail, but generally speaking, the statute of limitations runs for six years in these types of cases. And it runs from last payment. Unfortunately, last payment, not the date of default. Um, what this means is that a debt could have defaulted years ago, more than six years ago, but then um, when the debt buyer buys it, they, they may call up the consumer and get them to pay like a good faith $20 uh, payment towards the debt and that revives the statute of limitations. So getting into the first defense, the assignment defense, and this is only applicable to debt buyers, not original creditors, because the original creditors have not been assigned the debt, it, it originated with them. Um, this is by far our strongest legal defense. And um, we're gonna go through like five or six of these defenses. Not all of them are legal defenses. Um, some of them are more just sort of strategies in helping your client defend the claim, but, but this is, um, the first and the strongest legal defense we have. And it goes, this goes directly to the question about standing. So in order to recover from the defendant, the plaintiff must prove that it was assigned the defendant's debt. If you have a debt buyer, um, they need to show a proper and complete chain of title from the original creditor to the debt buyer that's now the plaintiff in the, the present case. So, um, generally to prove this, what the plaintiff will put forth is um, bill of sale documents. And what those documents, and this will become more clear when we do the mock hearing, and you should refer to the sample documents that I, I believe were distributed to you before this, but um, what the plaintiffs will put forward to prove that they actually own the defendants, that is a generic bill of sale that says on X date, LVNV funding acquired a portfolio of accounts from Capital One. Um, now, the accounts will be referenced as a, a sale file generally. And what that's referring to is literally thousands of, account, of accounts that were listed on a spreadsheet in Capital One's records and then were transferred to LVNV's computers. Um, the, how, how the bill of sale will, will show that it will say the accounts listed on attachment A or exhibit A, and then subsequently a attachment A or exhibit A labeled document will be presented. Now, for the most part, that document is totally redacted and has absolutely no useful information to us in terms of this specific case. All these documents generally tell us is that a portfolio of accounts was transferred from entity A to entity B, who is now the plaintiff in this account, but none of them will identify the individual defendant in this account, in this case. The one document that they will have that will identify your individual defendant is sometimes called the field data sheet. And that'll be, a sheet of paper on like an Excel spreadsheet that does have a lot of information about your client. Um, it'll have their name, their address, the account, the last four digits of the account number, um, when the last payment was, was made, it'll have all this information. 
um, but it won't be authenticated in any way. It's kind of a loose paper that um, in no way connects to the actual bill of sale. Um, we can tell this because it's not bait stamps like the rest of the bill of sale documents are. Um, it's not ref, this, this, this field data sheet is not referenced anywhere in the bill of sale. What we presume it is, is um, data extracted from the actual um, exhibit A or schedule A that, that is referenced in the bill of sale, um, but it's not, but it's not actually that document. It's a recreation that the plaintiff created in, in preparation for litigation um, with your um, client's information on it. So um, under these two cases listed here, Kim Howe v. Raji and Norfolk Financial Corp, that is not enough um, to prove standing in these types of cases. What these two cases say is that the bill of sale documents must reference the specific defendant's account, not just a general pool of accounts that were transferred, but must reference in the bill of sale that specific defendant's account. Um, these two cases, there's not a lot of case law in this area. So although these two cases are very good for us, they're from the um, appellate div division, which is not the same as the Mass Appeals Court. Um, regardless, certainly in a, in a small claims um, session, they, they, they should apply and, and um, carry weight, but um, sometimes sometimes they, they don't as much as, as we think they should. But I very much recommend before you get involved in, in volunteering with us to um, read these two cases. They're not long at all, and they will really lay out this argument in detail. So defense two is, we're calling it the no contract, no op application defense. And as I said, some of these um, are more sort of strategies or tools and not straight defenses. Now, because these are, one would think these are contract actions, a contract would have to be produced to recover um, for the, the amount claimed. We, however, never see a contract, um, a signed contract in, in any of these cases. Um, what we will see is a form contract that is often printed in you know, many years after the account was opened that has the terms and conditions um, laid out for the account, but, but often printed either the year the account was closed out or the year that the suit is brought, um, but never the actual terms and conditions that correlate to um, the year that the account was claimed to be open. And the way you can figure this out is at the bottom, there's always like a copyright date, um, copyright uh, signal with the, with the date. Um, and again, you'll see how this plays out in the mock hearing um, to come. But um, so pretty, pretty simple, one would think if there's no contractor or signed application for the credit, then the plaintiff can't recover on it. However, um, these actions aren't brought under a theory of contract. They're brought under a theory of account stated, which is a very um, old cause of action that is applied to revolving accounts like credit cards. Um, I mean, traditionally, it, they were really applied to sort of um, merchant vendor uh, arrangements where like the baker had a recurring order of flour from from 
a, a company every month and and was invoiced each month for that. But but applied in the credit card context, what the account stated theory says is that um, each month when the consumer receives their monthly account statement and that has a new balance and they don't object to it, then they have um, accepted the new balance. And that is the agreement. And under an account stated theory, you um, the original contract is not required to uh, prove liability. So um, it's it's pretty settled that that is an accepted cause of action. However, that can that proves liability, but then damages is still an open question that they must prove because when they're making these cases, they must prove um, the plaintiff must prove liability as well as damages to a reasonable degree of certainty. So um, we will get into that here. Um, defense three fees and interest. So if if the lack of a signed contract um, doesn't doesn't provide a defense to these types of actions because they're not brought as contract actions, we can still use that to our advantage by saying that because there is no signed contract outlining what fees, um, terms of the account and interest the defendant agreed to, then the plaintiff shouldn't be able to collect and recover any of those fees and interests. So this goes to the um, proving of damages argument. So um, we say in order to collect fees and interest, the plaintiff must produce a signed contract or the original application for credit to collect on those fees and interest. So um, generally in these cases, it varies, but we'll get anywhere from, in, in the documents provided, there will be some account statements. There'll be anywhere from one to 50. Um, just depending on how, how good the documents are. So you do have some account statements. Rarely will you have a complete accounting of, of the, the, the account from date open to charge off. Um, generally, if they're only going to provide one or two, they'll provide the last payment, um, the, the statement that reflects the last payment, as well as the charge off statement. But if they, so based on whatever amount of account statements they've provided, this, this fairness argument that we have used with a fair degree of success is adding up on those account statements provided, all the purchases made, and then subtracting any payments made. So this gives you a principal amount, um, less, you know, a principal amount, not including the fees and interest, and, this gives you the amount of damages that they have actually proven um, from the documents. And often this number will be far less than what the claim amount is. So this is a really attractive argument for a clerk because we're able to say, um, you know, we can see that, that our client had had the, the card with Capital One, made some purchases on that card, had, had um, made some purchases, made some payments. Um, we're conceding liability, but they still have to prove their damages. And from the documents they've provided, they've only proved $200 in damages, yet they're, they're filing complaints on uh, a $1,000 claim. Um, so, and then sometimes it'll actually reflect that the plaintiff owes your client money um, from, the, from the limited number of... Uh, of 
statements they've provided. Um, one more thing going back to um, no contract, no application and talking about the account stated theory for a moment. Um, obviously it's pretty rotten public policy for silence to, um, to equal uh, assumption of the, of the, of the, the new, um, the new amount on the, on the credit card statement. What we do have success also in, in and again, these aren't full on defenses. These are ways of, of mitigating your, your mitigating the claim and, and allowing judgment to enter against your client, but for a much reduced amount is under the account stated theory, what we'll sometimes argue when you look at the account statements and, and if, the, if a statement that reflects the last payment from your client is a statement that's far below what the claim amount is or what the, um, what the, the last statement is, then we'll sometimes say, okay, fine. Under the account stated theory, um, it's clear that my client received this account statement on this date and assented to it by making this payment reflected here. But that gets you to X amount. Um, so therefore judgment should enter for that amount um, and not, not the full amount claimed. And again, if this is sounding kind of confusing, it should all come, come be more clear in, in the mock hearing where we'll show you how these, how these certain defenses are argued. Um, so we already talked a little bit about the statute of limitations defense, but obviously this is a slam dunk defense if um, if it if it indeed is brought outside the statute of limitations. Again, remember that tricky thing that it, that um, a payment, even you know a twenty dollar payment, six years after the last one, can revive the statute of limitations, and you know people obviously don't don't know this. Um, so. Generally, six years from last payment in Massachusetts. However, a lot of these um, accounts are incorporated under the laws of Delaware, which has a three-year statute of limitations. So that's um, important to be on the lookout for. And then um, Colin is pursuing this novel theory that under the Uniform Commercial Code, there would be a four-year statute of limitations. So this would apply to only store cards um, that are that are restricted to being used to buy purchases at that store. Um, so that's sort of a, a fun new argument that that Colin has been working on a case for, but I think it's actually going to settle. Um, so we might not get clarification on that, but um, but four years, three years, six years. Um, are, are generally what you should be tying your head around for statute of limitations. And again, from um, date of last payment, not date of default. So wrong consumer identity theft. Um, if the defendant truly did not make all or some of the charges on the account, never had the card, then you know they, they may be the victim of identity theft. And if that's the case, the plaintiff will, um, we haven't really had a problem with the plaintiff um, dismissing the, the case. Now they won't do it right there the day of. What, they, what the plaintiff will require is that the um, defendant complete an identity theft affidavit um, and we can assist with that at, at clinic and, and um, get it signed and notarized by um, their local police station and then send that in to the plaintiff who will do their own um, 
investigation, but pretty much if the client is is filling is completing the identity theft affidavit, then the case um, should be dismissed against them. Um, as I mentioned before, this can get you know kind of tricky if they know the person who who is the identity thief. It might be an ex spouse or partner, um, and and or it might be someone you know that that they ha that had the card or was allowed to use it for some things, but then purchased other things without their consent. And I mean, I have a case right now where the woman's close family member opened the card in her name unbeknownst to her. She now has this debt, but she doesn't want to um, pursue the identity theft avenue. She wants to just get a reasonable settlement and, and be done with it. So um, that, you know, that's, that's a consideration to take. Um, so defense six, client is collection proof. And as I said, these aren't all defenses, but we're putting them in that bucket. Um, if your client is collection proof, it's different than judgment proof. Judgment can still enter against them. And there are some uh, reasons why a plaintiff might, might pursue the judgment entering, even if they know they can't get any payment on, on that judgment um, from your client. So if the defendant's collection proof, they cannot legally be required to pay the plaintiff at this time. So again, not a defense to judgment, only to payment of the judgment. Um, this is what occurs at the payment review hearings, which Colin mentioned earlier. Um, once judgment has entered in the small claim session, a payment review hearing will be set. And this is the opportunity for the court to assess the defendant's ability to pay. Um, and if the, if the defendant has, um, has exempt income and assets, this is when they should bring that to the attention of the court. Um, and then, and then if the court determines that they, um, only have exempt assets or, or maybe can't pay for another reason, they can enter a no ability to pay order. Um, what that generally does is, is put off a payment review for another year, at which point the parties will come back together and the court will um, reassess their ability to pay at that time. So, um, but sometimes a creditor will dismiss the case based on the collection proof status. So that is great. It means judgment doesn't enter, the case just gets dismissed. The instances where they will do this is when someone is what I call permanently collection proof versus temporarily collection proof. So the quintessential permanently collection proof client is um, an elderly woman or man on social security retirement insurance. You know, someone in their 70s or 80s they're not going back to work. They're receiving social security benefits. Um, their income is not gonna change in the future. They're gonna be receiving those benefits until the end of their life. Um, they are permanently collection proof. Um, someone, who, someone who's on disability, social security disability benefits would fall into the same category. Now, um, I mentioned earlier that even if you're not receiving benefits, you may still be collection proof. and. Um, that that is tied to the minimum wage. So what the legislature has determined is that 50 times whatever the minimum wage at that time is, so currently it's 1275 an hour, 50 times 1275 an hour, I believe is $637.50. Not because I did that right now because I use that number a lot. Um, 
if someone's working but making less than $637.50 gross per week, their total income is collected, is, is excuse me, protected from collection. Um, you know, that's a conscious policy choice that, that if someone is making that low amount of money, they shouldn't, their money shouldn't be going towards debts like this. Um, they should be going towards rent and food and the other basic necessities. So, but in that situation, say you have someone in their twenties or thirties who's working, but maybe not working full-time or working full-time, but just at a minimum wage job. Um, they, although they're currently collection proof in five years time, 10 years time, maybe they'll be making more money. Hopefully they'll be making more money and they will no longer be collection proof. And if you remember that judgments are good for 20 years um, and, and have a 12% annual interest rate attached to them, um, that creditor can come back in 10 years um, and collect on that judgment at a much, a much higher um, amount now. So um, those, are, those are things you need to be aware of when um, you're thinking about how to settle or ask for, uh, we generally call these hardship dismissals if, 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 a, if a plaintiff is gonna dismiss um, because your client is, is permanently collection proof. Um, instances where the plaintiff will not wanna dismiss, may not wanna dismiss even if your client is permanently collection proof is if they own property. Um, although they won't be able to, because what they'll wanna do is put a lien on, on the client's home. Now, putting the lien on the home won't do anything to um, force the clients to, to leave their home or force a sale or anything like that because of the, the homestead protections in Massachusetts. Um, but that's a real consideration if someone does, does own a home. Most of our clients, um, you know, if you volunteer for us, for them to be eligible for our services um, and, and, their, and their collection proof won't, won't be owning a home, but something to, to think about. So this is, um, this defense only applies in the civil session. Um, so we won't talk about it in too much detail since most of our work currently is in the small claim session, but it's a new rule of, of civil procedure that went into effect in 2019, I believe, January of 2019, Colin, is that right? Um, and it, it- Yeah, that sounds, that sounds correct. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's, yeah, pretty, it's so, it's so new. I think, I think, I think a lot of, um, I think a lot of judges haven't actually like seen cases with where, well, where this like, becomes an issue yeah. I'm going to ask you to talk about at the end here, your, your, your case um, sure. that you're hearing recently. But so um, a new requirement under the rules of civil procedure that, um, that, that require a lot more documentation that needs to be filed at the start of these cases. Again, this only applies to the civil session. So um, you can read here, the plaintiff shall file simultaneously with the complaint the affidavits, documentation, and certification provided for in subsection C through F of the rule. Um, and all those document, all the affidavits, documentation, certification will also be served on the defendant with the complaint. So the affidavits and documentation are essentially refer back to our assignment argument. What they, what they, what the rule says that they require are 
the bills of sale referencing the consumer's specific account, terms and conditions of the account. Um, and, but, but however, and I need to, I need to get back to these rules and, and sort of read them more closely, but there is sort of a, a loophole there. It's not, um, there's a, if you go through C through F, it, it sort of provides a lot of um, either, either this or that can be submitted. And, and there is a way, um, I think there is a way for plaintiffs to um, satisfy the rule without actually meeting the, the, the burden that they have under the Kim Howe and Raji cases. Um, however, this is just for filing. I mean, that doesn't mean that they would, that, that, that they would meet the, the evidentiary standard that's required of them further along in the case. Um, but um, the, so Colin recently had a, case, a, a hearing on a motion to dismiss for non-compliance with this rule. And, and as, as he said, it's very new. Um, and I don't think a lot of judges are, are quite familiar with it. But um, Colin, you want to talk about that briefly? Yeah, sure. So, so for, for one thing, we have had limited success with this. I know there was a, there was a question about a year ago or earlier this year. I mean, what is time anymore anyway? But um, it was basically whether this rule, Master Rules 8.1, applies to uh, debt buyers who have purchased a judgment, like from a previous small claims case, and now they're seeking to collect on a uh, on a uh, otherwise good judgment. And it's where the judgment creditor is different from the current plaintiff. And the judge in the case that we had decided that 8.1 applied also to trustee process actions where the judgment creditor is different than the plaintiff in the garnishment case, which I think is is pretty, is, is, is great. I, I think it's, um, and I think I think that given the rule, I think that's that's that was the correct decision. Um, there was another. I had a case last week where we filed a motion to dismiss. The creditors' documents were pretty good. Um, they, what I was hung up about was whether they submitted what the what 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 eight point one requires of plaintiffs of creditors to file is they, it requires them to file a bill of sale that references the consumer's specific account beginning with the original creditor. And I read the language for exactly what it says, that it has to be a bill of sale beginning with the original creditor that references the defendant's account. Um, the debt collector in that case, or the debt buyer, uh, they said that, um, a data sheet that they submitted with the um, with the documents was sufficient because it referenced the consumer's specific account. But I got hung up on the data sheet because the data sheet did not begin with the original creditor. It was, I think, created by the plaintiff and the data sheet even said, this was created like by us or this is data that was extracted from documents that we got from the original creditor. And as we all know, data extracted from another document is not that other document. Um, unfortunately, the judge um, did find, a, find against us and found that this met the pleading requirements, but um, obviously I disagree with that decision. Um, 
and the judge actually found that the uh, credit card statements that the plaintiff had submitted with the complaint were sufficient, mostly sufficient to satisfy 8.1. And I, I was, I was quite disappointed, but um, you know, we'll be, we'll be trying again. So it's um, new. It's like Tulu was saying, it's new. It hasn't come up a lot. I think the judges see creditors attorneys all the time, day in, day out. They don't see us as often. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of even just the, the, Know, kind of the minutia of what of what the, the distinction between the field data sheet and the the and the bill of sale document that's referenced we really need to um step by step explain that to the judges and and clerks because like colin said they're seeing creditors attorneys all the time and just kind of rubber stamping default judgments or looking through these files and aren't being um challenged on on a lot of these so so um it's a lot of of just explaining why these what these what what these missing documents mean and and why it's relevant um one final thing i wanted to say um before i hand it over to catherine for the next sec section is um if you're going the settlement route uh with your client what you want to remember is um, that these debt buyers have bought these accounts for pennies on the dollar. So the face value, the that's the, the face value of these accounts is not the real value. Is not what the, these these plaintiffs paid for the the account, right? So if um, and, and that that's just you really need to keep that in your mind when you're doing settlement negotiations because throwing out there something that sounds like a super lowball offer isn't actually that crazy when um, compared to, to what the plaintiff actually paid for this specific account and they still may be turning a profit on this one, one account. Um, and, and that's yeah. something that you may have to explain to your client too um, in, in, in sort of getting them on board with, um, with not being too eager because, because very often the collection attorneys will, it, when, when um, defendants aren't represented by counsel, you know, collection attorneys sometimes will say, listen, I can do you a great deal. I'll it, you, you have this $2,000 debt here, you can pay it for $1,500, um, which sounds good, right? That's that's a quarter of the debt knocked off, but we can generally get get less than that. Um, and, and if you keep that context in mind, it'll help you um, justify. <laughs> The, the lower amount. And, and and just to add to that to like keep in mind, like if your client is collection proof, like even just on the line, like they're working, maybe they make 700 bucks a week. If the creditor recovers a judgment against them, what are they going to do with it? They probably can't collect on it. So you're making a good faith settlement offer, your client making a good faith offer to pay. I, I mean, that's going to be guaranteed money for the creditor that they wouldn't get if they have a useless judgment. So right, right. Um, even if it's low, but are there any questions? I should check the questions before we move on. Um, John, John had a really good, it was it John. Someone had, a, someone had a comment, which was a good comment. Um, let's see. I just see, is it in the chat? I'm not seeing it. If yeah, it's here in the chat. John Murray says it sort of seems like the concept of burden of proof is not as hard and fast of a rule. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, again, it, it, it's not a satisfying answer, but um, going back to that stat that nine plaintiffs, nine plaintiffs make up nearly half of all the civil docket filings in the state. Um, and they're just churning, churning these filings out and for the most part obtaining default judgments. So a lot of these theories haven't been, um, they haven't been pushed a lot. Um, and, you know, we, we're operating in, in a few, just a small handful of courts across the state and GBLS has some clinics and some courts, but like in most of the district courts, these, um, these, these claims, you know, aren't being challenged at all. Um, so um, that uplifting note. Sky, we have another, two more. We have, oh. Looks over tomorrow. Hey, Skylar, I go. Hi, Skylar. Um, is there a good rule of thumb about what percentage of face value is good offer to make? Um, keeping in mind what the client can pay. Um, I think it, 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 it depends largely on the quality of the, of the creditors, I think documents and proof in these cases. I think if you have a really, if your client, if it's clear to you that the debt buyer's claim to owning this debt is just not supported by the evidence and under the law, they wouldn't be able to prevail at trial or likely wouldn't be able to prevail at trial. I think you can go with something really low that the client can just pay in one. I mean, you probably should go to trial if that happens, but if your client doesn't want to, which they often don't, I think you can make a very low ball settlement offer that your client can realistically pay and that the creditor's attorney will accept. Um, I think it's I think it's always worth in, in debt buyer cases to um, to start at 50% or lower given the general quality of, of the documents that we see in these cases. Sometimes the documents are really good though and you can still make that 50% offer if that's what your client can do. But I think a lot of it just depends on what your client can do and, and the quality of the evidence. So um, I feel like when we, when we generally do now, if it's an original creditor, they generally have better documents, not always, but generally, I think, I think getting it down to 50% is generally tough. But again, it's really what the, what the plaintiff is willing to do and what your client can pay. Like Tallulah mentioned, if your client has the ability to make, make a lump sum offer, it might be a lot of more money up front, but it's guaranteed money to the creditor and a lump sum payment to settle everything is generally preferable. So, and, yeah. and, and creditors will go lower. They'll go lower and it's pref and then, you know, it, it's preferable if your client's able to do it, it's better for them too, because then it's done and taken care of. We know if we enter into, you know, a, it's some, we have to often monthly payment plans, but it goes out for a year. We try to keep them less than a year, but, um, you know, your client could get a halfway through it and then and then not be able to pay anymore. Um, so so the, sort of the shorter the period, the better, but obviously working within the, the constraints of your of your client. Um, and then one last thing on that is it also ebbs and flows a bit with different firms and different plaintiffs. Um, 
this this isn't this would require um yeah more observing of the trends but i feel like just anecdotally right now um during covid we've gotten some better settlements than we were um of you know the beginning of the year for whatever reason and yeah you know, i think they kind of the the, the the plaintiffs give their collection attorneys sort of marching orders of a range and and these can shift depending on on certain circumstances um so i see we have two more questions here what are the effects to your credit of having a judgment against you um good question and a question that our clients ask us a lot and what we say to them what i say to them and colin i think you said the same thing but but um add anything is is that the the hit to their credit has has the, the big hit to their credit happened when um, the account went into default. That's when that's when the credit score, you know, went down and the the since going into default and um, filing the claim and then a judgment entering against them, those differences aren't um, aren't substantial. Um, I can't put a, a number amount on it, but the the from going into default to filing the claim and judgment entering, it, you're already kind of in the red zone, um, and it's it's not insignificant, but I but not very significant. Um, the the difference there. It will the credit at least the three major three. I don't know about like every other CR consumer reporting agency out there, but the big three: Experian, TransUnion, Equifax. They're not reporting judgments anymore since mm. since since oh, a right. while ago. So they. If it won't, it won't appear on on the right. credit report. Um, judgments and tax liens are no longer appearing on the big three, and those are the main ones that creditors are using when they're thinking about extending credit. So, right. That's yeah. Point. I agree that it's the hit is when you is when the consumer defaults. Um, and then this is another good question. Um. Does the debtor have a 93A claim if the creditor attaches their home subject to a homestead exemption because it is in effect attaching exempt property? There's a case yeah. being heard on this right now at the appeals court or the SJC. Yeah, um, yeah that's a good, um, it, you know, We'll, we'll see, we'll see. I actually, if you're interested, anonymous attendee, um, email me because I actually have a copy of the briefing um, for that issue. Uh, so, so let me know if you'd like to take a look at it. Um, so then just a follow up to the last, the last point about credit, um, credit scores. Is there any additional negative effects of a judgment against you if you are collection proof? So um, if you're collection proof and a judgment enters against you and you're um, temporarily collection proof in my, my definition of that being, you know, you're, you're working and in your twenties or thirties and in 10 years, you're gonna be making more money. The adverse effect is that when you, when you become um, when you no longer are collection proof, the judgment will still be valid and the 12% annual interest rate will have increased the, the claim amount. Um, if, and there's permanent mass courts record of it forever and ever because right. for some reason, 
they allow people with terrible criminal records to get their criminal like records sealed, but people with small claims debts and like eviction cases, they don't have that. It's, it's, it's a forever notation on the, on the mass court's docket, which right. is and easily the, searchable. And the practical, practical um, issue with that could be, um, you know, if someone's looking for housing or something in their landlord, I mean, more likely a prospective landlord would be looking for um, a, a, a history of evictions, right? But um, they may also see that, oh, they had a judgment entered against them, not bother to seeing, um, they might even, they might even just check and see that they have an end, they, they were sued at one time for an outstanding debt. And even if they, if the defendant prevailed, they might hold that against them. So yeah, it's kind of uh, a balancing there. All right. Um, I don't see any more questions. I don't think I'm missing anything. Oh, is there something in the chat? Oh, yeah, there's something in the chat. Um, okay, so if the client is collection proof, I think you can basically offer 10 to 20% of the claimed amount since something is better than nothing. And the creditor's attorney who is paid on a contingency um, does not want to waste time pursuing an uncollectible debt. I've had success settling on a, a $2,000 debt. Oh, settling for $2,000 on a 25K debt in that situation. That's, um, that's very useful um, to hear and to know. I, I, I haven't had such success. That, that's great. Um, that's inspiring. Um, I have, I think sometimes, yeah, no, I think, I think especially if, if, if the defendant is collection proof and you really um, explain to the collection attorney how, how something now is better than, than nothing, um, they should be amenable to, to something. But um, in my experience, sometimes they're, they're not. Maybe they're just not thinking it through all the way or being stubborn or, or something. But that is um, really great to hear. Um, follow up from Daniel, who made the last comment. Um, you can also leverage a potential 93A claim against that attorney too for attaching exempt property or other actions. Um, yes. Yes. So that would be if, if once judgment has actually entered and if they take steps to, um, to collect on exempt uh, income. All right. So we should probably move on. I think there are, if, if there, you know, this, it's too, I really, it's too bad we can't all be in the same room and have a, a more natural dialogue, but um, keep, keep your questions and comments coming and we'll, after this next sec session, we'll, um, we'll check back in with them again um, before going into the, the mock hearing. So I'm going to hand it over to Catherine to talk about the state of small claims in this new post-pandemic world. And Catherine, just tell me next slide when, when sure. I need it. Um, you can go ahead and hop over now. So prior to the pandemic, we had six different um, clinics that were running out of five different courts. So we had Dorchester, Malden, Cambridge, Quincy, 
BMC Central small claims and then BMC Central on the civil session. And this kept us pretty busy. And so we were running 100 miles an hour and then come March, we, we hit zero. And from there, we've seen all of the courts are kind of taking on two different models for how they're going to be handling small claims virtually. And the first one that really got things started was the Quincy District Court. Um, so right now they are not scheduling a single case. Um, they're just sending out notices to defendants who have an active case, letting them know you do have a hearing that's eventually going to come. We don't know when that's gonna be, but you have this active case against you. They also in this letter mentioned our organization and that we could potentially represent people. So then Quincy is kind of acting as an intermediary. The clients that get these letters from the court then tell Quincy, yes, I would love it if, if somebody from the Volunteer Lawyers Project could represent me. Quincy then forwards us those potential clients. We conduct our intake with them and let Quincy know if we're going to be representing them. And this is nice because it Back when we were doing live sessions, it seems like you literally met the client 15 minutes before the hearing started. And so you had to prepare very, very quickly to get things going. And with this model, you have as much time as you need to, to speak to your client, to talk to the opposing counsel and decide if you're going to settle or prepare for a hearing. Um, we have noticed that without a deadline looming, the opposing counsel is a little slow to get back to us about any settlement negotiations with these clients. But for those of you that would prefer like a slower paced, more relaxed model, this could be a good, a good medium for you. And then we'll go into the next slide. So BMC Central is currently holding virtual hearings on the first and third Thursdays in two sessions at 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. Dorchester is scheduled to start theirs uh, in January and those will be on the second and fourth Tuesdays at 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. And the way those work is it's, it more closely resembles our live sessions where we haven't had any contact with the clients prior to these hearings and the clerk will do a call of the list so we'll know who's there or not. And prior to that, VLP will make a really brief statement, just introducing ourselves and letting clients know that we could potentially represent them if they're interested. If they do say they would like to talk to us, the court gives them a short continuance of the case, usually about a month. And that'll give us time to connect the intake, talk to the opposing counsel, put in our notices of appearance with the court and get the ball rolling from there. Um, Malden and Cambridge are, are a little slower um, with how they're adjusting to the virtual environment. So they're more closely resembling the Quincy model. They're sending out letters to defendants with, our, with information about their case. They're not currently scheduling anything and clients have the opportunity to contact us if they are interested in receiving our assistance. I don't believe we've actually gotten anybody from Quincy or Malden who said that they'd be interested in our help. And um, I'm seeing questions pop up. We'll get through to the end of this session and then answer those along the way. 
Um, so when we refer a case to you, you'll we'll already have conducted an intake with the client and have quite a bit of background about their financial status and about the case. So you'll receive this kind of packet that includes the statement of small claim and all of the, the information that comes along with that, the client's contact information, who the opposing counsel is. Um, you'll have details about the client's income, so we'll be able to let you know if they're collection proof or not. And you'll have pre-filled out notices of limited appearance and withdrawal. All you'll need to do is electronically sign those and we'll let you know what the upcoming hearing date is. So with the notice of appearance in particular, um, the court is letting us sign those electronically on client's behalf. We just need a written statement from them in an email saying like, I give permission for Volunteer Lawyers Project to sign this document for me. So that makes things a lot easier. So all you have to do once you've received your case is reach out to your client, let, introduce yourself and um, see what their interest is in this case. Um, you'll, you'll get their signature on that limited appearance and you'll email it to the court and opposing counsel because opposing counsel is not likely to give you the time of day unless you have an appearance on file with, for the case. Um, you should ask the attorney for the other side for all the documents that they wanna use in the case then and discuss your options with the client. So you can suggest either the settlement route, going to hearing, maybe continuing the case if you feel like you need a little bit more time to prepare. And then come hearing date, you can either report the settlement or go to hearing. And along the way, just give us maybe like bi-weekly status updates so we know how things are going. So y'all will get copies of this PowerPoint and we have some of these little template emails that you can just kind of copy and paste or fill in as you need. Um, so you're not starting from scratch with anything. Our, our previous volunteers and Colin and Tallulah have done this at least a million times by now. Um, so we can rely on their expertise rather than having y'all reinvent the wheel. So we can, there we go. Um, once the case is settled, you really wanna make sure the client has everything that they need because they're not gonna be in touch with you once you enter your withdrawal of appearance to the court. So make sure that they know the exact details of what their settlement amount is if y'all did decide to settle, who they're making payments to, when, and for how much. Um, and then of course, I wanna know what's going on along the way. So just send me a summary email of what happened with the case. If you gave any specific advice to the client, if they have upcoming dates, um, the arrangement of the settlement, because they might call me with questions later down the road and I want to be able to give them the exact right information rather than having to kind of guess or fill in the blanks. So here, here are examples of closing emails that you might send to your client and to the opposing counsel. And what you could email to me, <laughs> go on and skip past these. Um, for limited assistance representation is a really awesome tool that allows us to represent clients for a specific day or specific event. 
So we're not expecting you to go full in and enter a full appearance on these clients' behalf and commit to representing them start to finish. But what we're all, all we're really asking is saying, I can represent them at this upcoming small claims hearing and not be compelled to do anything after that. Um, there is a self-certification process for doing LAR, as you like to call it. Um, so whenever you get a copy of these slides, you can just click on the hyperlink here and it's a quick 30 minute video that you can listen to in between podcasts. Um, and then you'll be certified to do LAR on client's behalf. Um, there's copies of the notices of appearance forms on the government website, uh, but whenever you get a case, we will send you the pre-filled out ones, so you don't even have to worry about that. But just in general, if you produce any documents in the course of a case, whether it's a settlement agreement, maybe you're helping a client vacate a default judgment and you, you write up a motion to do that, please, please send us a copy in addition to the copies that you might send to the court or opposing counsel. And then whenever you finish up the case, you'll submit your withdrawal of the notice of limited appearance. And this next little bit is just going to be some general strategies for having Zoom hearings. So we've been remote for about eight months now. And I think a lot of you have probably gotten pretty familiar with staring at your webcam, but we have some just general tips to make sure that you're really successful in these, in these hearings. So in general, try to keep your background neutral and limit any noise and distractions. So if you have a dog, maybe kick them out of your room for a little bit. Um, I have a pretty impressive comic book collection in my bookcase and that's great in some circles but if I show it in my background a clerk magistrate might not appreciate it as much so we'll stick with white walls for me for the time being and even though we're virtual uh, like 90 percent of communication is nonverbal, and it's a lot easier to understand people when you can see their face and expressions so if you feel comfortable for it please try to use your video feature um, dress professionally, at least from the waist up, because that's all we see is so you can be comfortable, at least from the waist down. And when you're not speaking, please mute your microphone. Um, when y'all get the slides, you can click on our little hyperlink under here. And it's a fun little video of someone arguing on a teleconference line before the Supreme Court. And you could hear a nice little toilet flush in the bathroom. And while that's funny in that YouTube video, I don't want that happening to any of y'all. And if you do need to get up and move around, take a drink of water, take a break, even just being on camera 24 seven is exhausting. You can turn your video function off and you'll get like the nice little black box with your name on it. And you can also edit your name as it appears on Zoom. So right now you see our black boxes for Tallulah and Colin right now. Um, if you use Zoom in other circumstances and have like a funny little nickname, that's cute in other circumstances, but when you're before the clerk or a judge, we would, we would like to see your proper name, please. Next slide. Um, so you're probably going to need access to your email or cell phone during a session. 
Um, so what we generally recommend is you log in on a tablet or computer to the, the court session and then have your phone available for you on the side. That way you can be chatting with Colin and Tallulah if you need any advice going into it and you could be emailing with opposing counsel. You'll also need a stable internet connection. And nowadays we have like 30 different smart devices in our house between our TVs and refrigerators and ACs and all of the possibilities. So these can all, even in the background, they can slow your connection down. So try to be aware of what all is logged onto your Wi-Fi and limit them during the hearing hours. And I think public libraries are slowly starting to reopen. Um, you can reserve specific times if you need to use those computers and that could be an option for either you or your client to consider. And if you need anything, please, please let us know. Um, like I said before, we're not asking you to reinvent the wheel or do anything from scratch. We've done this quite a bit and we have you know, sample pleadings, agreement forms. Um, we have sample motions of anything that you would possibly need to file that we can send along to you as a resource. So. Cool, thanks, Catherine. Um, I see a question which is how do we currently schedule hearings on motions to serve the required notice of that hearing date to opposing counsel when we cannot mark up motions for hearing during COVID? So you, um, you can mark up motions for hearings um, during COVID. Different courts have like different standing orders about what is required, but you can ask for a motion to be um, marked up and I think that just the, the procedure for doing that just depends on whether you're in housing court, Boston Municipal Court or, um, or district court. Um, that, I, I think that was the question, but if, if the question was geared more towards how do you, when you're submitting your notice of limited appearance and there's not a hearing scheduled, what do you put on it? I think you can put on it negotiation with opposing party and representation at um, next small claims date, whenever it gets scheduled. Um, you could, I've put like TBD in the date section. So, um, and then the retainer that we VLP signs with the client says, we will, we're only representing you at your next scheduled one. We're not representing you in any like post judgment proceedings or anything, so. Um, but if you have a question about what to put on a on a notice of limited appearance, um, feel feel free to reach out to us, and we'll kind of look at the case and see what what's appropriate. Okay, I don't see any more questions. Maybe we'll just. Give it a minute. Should we take another five minute break before our mock hearing? Yeah, and so for everyone out there, um, you'll wanna have the documents that were sent to you ahead of time. Um, so you can, because those are the documents that are gonna be the basis for this mock hearing. So see you in five minutes.
So, Among Yang, I just sent you the documents. Um, for this mock hearing, I'll introduce who's going to be playing who. Meng Yang is the client. Um, Colin is going to be playing her counsel. So that would be you all as volunteers, the role you would be taking. I'm going to be the plaintiff's attorney, nasty creditor's attorney, and Catherine is going to be the clerk magistrate. Um, Colin, do you want to do like a super brief um, prep with your client before going into the hearing? Sure. All right. All right. Yang, you want you want to be Miss Yang or do you want to be somebody else? Up to you. I can be Miss Yang. <laughs> okay. Uh, hi, Miss Yang. My name is Colin Harnsgate. I'm going to be your attorney today for your debt collection case. Hello. Um, so um, as we discussed earlier, we're going to go to a hearing today uh, because um, we were unable to find a, a uh, acceptable settlement of this case for you. And um, uh, so as I understand it, you did have you did have an account with Credit One Bank, right? Yes. Yeah. And you think you probably owe them some money, but like not maybe not as much as they're asking for. Is that is am I correct on that? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So they're asking for uh, $815. And I know you you told me that you think that that's a little bit a little bit high. I, mm -hmm. I, I imagine a lot of it's due to interest. Um, and as we also talked about before, um, the company that's suing you is this company called Midland Funding, which uh, which is not Credit One Bank. And um, have you ever do you, have you ever done business with Midland Funding? No, Probably. never heard of them. Yeah. Okay. Is today the first, or when you got this notice, the first time that you had heard of them? Yeah. No idea. Okay. That. All right. Um, most of the arguments that I'm going to be making in your hearing have to do with um, Midland Funding's uh, uh, right to collect money from you, since you didn't have an account with them. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to ask you many questions about that um, uh, or any at all. Um, depending on what the creditor's attorney asks you, I may ask you whether um, when you made a payment on the card, whether you were expressly agreeing to the statement in the, uh, to the amount of money in the statement, if that makes sense. Like, did you, like, if you received a statement for $1,000 and you made a $50 payment, were you saying, oh yeah, I owe that $1,000 and that's why I'm making this payment? Because um, some people just, uh, like me, sometimes I just sort of like, oh, I got to pay my credit card. I'll send them 50 bucks this week. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know which, how you did it. Um, were you, do you which, which way were you doing it? Were you like logging into your account to make a payment or were you just kind of like, oh yeah, I have to pay my credit card? Yeah, I, I don't have it scheduled. It just comes to my mind sometime to pay off my uh, credit card debt, but I don't read every statements they send to me. So sometimes I will lose track of things, I guess. Okay. So it sounds like to me that when you were making a payment that you weren't saying, oh yeah, I owe all the money that's due on this account. You just knew you had some money due and were making a payment. Yes. All right. Um, so the creditor will probably ask you probably not more than five questions. It's 
mostly going to be about, did you receive statements? Is this your correct address on the statements? Um, and maybe a few other things, but just, just tell them the truth. Um, if you don't remember, you can say you don't remember if, if that's the truth. Um, but I think, uh, but I'll, I'll be doing most of the talking. Do you have any questions for me before we, um, before we jump in? I think I'm good to go. Okay. Um, all right, plaintiff's counsel, uh, we're, we're ready for, for hearing. Okay, great. All right, welcome to today's small claim session. I'm Catherine Harris, I'll be your clerk magistrate today. And we've already gone through our call of the list, so we know who's here. And just as a reminder to all attorneys present, we've got about 20 cases scheduled to be heard today. So I'd like these to, to be as brief as possible and keep your arguments concise. So we'll start today with case 20SCABC. Uh, this uh, debt collector versus Mong Yan Yang. Are both sides present? Yes, yeah. Colin Hinesgate on behalf of uh, the defendant. Um, I've submitted a notice of limited appearance, Madam Clerk. Kalula Kanap on behalf of Midland funding the plaintiff in this case. And uh, plaintiff's counsel kindly emailed me the documents prior to the hearing. Um, so I've we've had a chance to look at them. Great. Well, since you're the one who brought this case forward, I'd like you to begin. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, this is a claim on an assigned debt brought by Midland Funding. Um, the original creditor in this case was Credit One Bank. Um, we have in the statement of small claim the, the account number and the date of last payment, which was 7-11-2017, um, a payment in the amount of $50 was made on this account. The account was then charged off um, on 10-28-2018. It did go through a number of different assignments before it um, before it became in the hands of my my client Midland Funding. All the all the all the assignments are documented with um, with corresponding chain of title um, and with Miss Miss Yang's account information. The claim amount we are seeking today is $815.76 plus $50 in costs. Um, that $815.76 amount is reflected on the charge off statement, which is included in the documents that I've shared with um, my brother counsel. Um, I would like to just ask Ms. Yang a few questions. And has Yang, we can swear you in. If you'll raise your right hand and promise to tell the truth. I promise to tell the truth. Great, Attorney Kanop, if you'll continue. Thank you. Um, hi, Ms. Yang, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, so I know that your um, your attorney here has gone over the documents with you. And if I could just bring your attention to page 22 of the documents um, in this case. Mm -hmm. 
there is in the bottom right hand corner, it has, um, I, I believe your name and your address. Is that your correct address? The bottom right hand corner of that document? Yes, that's my address. Okay. Um, and you currently, you receive mail at that address? Yes. Ever have any problems with receiving your mail at that address? No, not that I can recall. Okay. And um, you recall having a Credit One account? Yes, I do. Okay. And um, when you had that account, would you receive account statements through the mail? Yes, from time to time. Yes, I think so. Okay. Um, so if I bring your attention to page 23, um, which is an account statement. Again, it has that same address in the bottom right-hand corner. Um, mm -hmm. and it, it reflects um, a balance of $815. Do you recall receiving this account statement? I, I don't really have memory of this particular statement. Okay. So in general, you did receive account statements. Yes, but I, I don't think I read every single one of them. Okay, um, and going back to page 22 in the documents, that account statement, um, the first line there reflects a payment of $50 that was made on uh, July 11th. Um, do you recall making that $50 payment? I, I don't have a clear memory of that, maybe. Um... Would anyone else make an, a payment on this card, on this account, instead of you? Uh, I maybe I don't I don't think so. Maybe it was me. I really don't remember that well. Okay, okay. Um, over the course of the of the card, you did make you did make um, frequent you you did make payments. Is that is yes that yes some payments? Okay. Um. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Yang. I, I don't have any further questions. Um, I just have a brief closing, Madam Clerk. Um, um, well, I, I just have, Madam Clerk, if it's okay, I have not more than three questions for my client. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Ms. Yang, can I uh, turn your attention, please, to um, one of plaintiff's exhibits, which is uh, I believe a plaintiff claims is the credit card statement showing the last payment, which is on page 22 of the plaintiff's exhibits. Uh, let yeah. me know when you're there. Yes, I'm at, I'm, I'm at page 22. Okay. Um, plaintiff claims you made a payment on July 11th um, uh, of 2007, uh, 2017, that this was your last payment. Um, do you see where that's indicated on this statement? Yes. When you made this, when you made this payment, were you assenting to the balance? As in, were you agreeing that you owed the amount of money that was listed in this statement? I think I was just um, repaying my credit card debts as a routine sort of. I didn't really check the particular payment I made. What did I do at the time? I don't really recall that. Did you even notice what the what the account balance was when you made the payment? Mm, 
again, I was just, I think, repaying as sort of a routine, just thought of it. I didn't really read through the particulars of this statement. So not really. Last question. When was the first time you heard from Midland funding? Or you heard of Midland funding? Uh, when they sued me, I guess. I've never heard of them before. I have no further questions, Madam Clerk. I uh, would only like to be heard briefly um, in closing. Okay, let's let plaintiff's counsel do their closing and then I'll hear you. Um, this, as I mentioned in my opening, this is an assigned debt um, through the, and it's brought under the account stated theory. Uh, Ms. Yang testified that that is her her correct address on the account statements. She testified that she receives mail at that address and in fact did receive some account statements that were regularly sent to her there. Um, the, the law of account stated says that if a defendant receives an accounting and doesn't object to it, um, they've accepted the amount on the account, on the account stated as, as valid. Um, the final account statement, which is the charge-off statement that was sent to Ms. Yang, uh, reflects a balance of $815.76. Ms. Yang did not object to that, um, and that account was then subsequently transferred through a number of different parties to my client, Midland Funding. Um, a full a full and complete chain of title through all those transfers has been provided to the court as well as to opposing counsel. And for those reasons, um, judgment should enter for Midland funding. Thank you. Okay, Attorney Hernsgate, I'll hear you next. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, there's, there are multiple bases on which you can enter a judgment for the defendant, all independent of each other in this case. Uh, the first defense that my client has uh, is um, that you can enter judgment for her on is the uh, assignment argument. Now, as my, as my client testified, and as I think is clear from the documents, and I don't think plaintiff would dispute this, uh, is that my client never had any business dealings with uh, Midland Funding, who is the plaintiff in this case. Uh, of course, she did have a Credit One card, and she's admitted that. But my client, having had a Credit One card and having made payments or charges on that Credit One card is not enough for the plaintiff in this case uh, to prevail. So the plaintiff has provided the court a really confusing chain of assignments. Um, and I, I would encourage the court not to be swayed just by the volume of documents that they've produced uh, to uh, equate that with better documents because these documents are not good and uh, we argue that they do not prove that the plaintiff uh, is um, the correct party in interest in order to recover from Ms. Yang. Um, the assignment in this case took on took various routes. Uh, at one, the first assignment allegedly happened from credit one to MHC receivables, um, whereas at this point the, the accounts and the receivables went their separate ways. Uh, the accounts went to a debt buyer named Sherman Originator, and the receivables went to a company called FNBM. 
the receivables were allegedly transferred again from FNBM to Sherman. And what the plaintiff claims is that at this point, Sherman, a debt buyer itself, then sold the debts to another debt buyer, Midland Funding. And they claim that happened around April 26th of 2018. Uh, the troubling thing about the plaintiff's documents is that uh, for most of them, not all, but for most of them, there's something called an Exhibit A, which uh, the Exhibit A is an attachment to the bill of sale, which is supposed to indicate what accounts were transferred between the debt buyers or between the original creditor and, and a debt buyer. And that would be a good way for the court to know whether the defendant's account was included among all the transfers that took place. Unfortunately, if the court looks at any of the Exhibit A's, which, which are in evidence, um, an example of which is on um, an example of which is on page 14 or page 12 or page six. None of these Exhibit A's, which are the attachment, actually reference my client's specific account. So what the plaintiff has essentially given the court are batches of documents that say, oh, well, on, on uh, April 18th or on March 31st or on April 26th, certain accounts were sold between all these companies involved here. And we're not disputing that maybe some of these companies transferred debts between the two, but that doesn't mean that my client's specific debt was included in any of those assignments because none of the bills of sale and none of their attachments actually reference her. The real, really the only thing that discusses the assignment that references my client's account is this affidavit from Stephanie Broomer, which is on page two. Uh, and that does reference my client, my, it does reference my client, but um, the, this, is, this is a self-serving affidavit made by somebody who works at Midland. And I think it's expected that they would say what they say in this affidavit, which is that they've reviewed the documents that they've given to the court and they've made this conclusion that they own the debt. However, they, and they, they say they have personal knowledge of those documents, but what they don't have personal knowledge of is the assignment process that, that happened before uh, the debt allegedly even, uh, even got to uh, Midland. So um, they have not shown by a preponderance of the evidence that they, that that Midland Funding is the owner of this debt, and you can enter a judgment for the defendant on, on that alone. Um, se separately, um, if the, the account stated theory, as, as my sister described, um, is a, I, I, I wouldn't argue is the valid cause of action in Massachusetts, but I don't believe the plaintiff has met their burden under the account stated cause of action, because the account stated cause of action as my sister says, what's, it is true that when somebody makes a payment without any other evidence, generally that payment is considered uh, an assent to the balance. And, but, but you have more evidence here. And that evidence came from the testimony of Ms. Yang, which is that when she made that payment on July 11th of 2017, she really wasn't assenting to the balance. She, she, it's, it's unclear whether she even looked at the balance and she can't assent to the balance without even looking at it. Um, so simply by making that payment, she wasn't assenting to it. Now the plaintiff has also not proven their damages because they've only given the court two statements. 
One is the charge-off statement with the claim balance, which doesn't have any transactions on it. The earlier statement is the, which is on page 22, which is the last payment statement. And that's, and the only transaction on that is a payment by Miss Yang of $50. And if the plaintiff is claiming $815 in this case, they should show an itemization of how that was calculated. It's unfair to my client to expect her to remember something that happened two, maybe more years ago, and to have to admit to having this balance when the plaintiff won't even bring this court all the statements showing how it calculated this amount. And based on this evidence, there's, we're not, we don't have a counterclaim in this case, but they, they have one payment of $50. They don't have any purchases. Based on this evidence, my clients paid them more money than they've extended to her in credit. Again, we don't have a counterclaim, but it just goes to not how, how their evidence is, is not really that good. Um, finally, if the court is inclined to enter a judgment for the plaintiff and against Ms. Yang, we would, we would encourage the court to interpret the account stated theory cause of action very strictly, which is that if the court considers Ms. Yang's payment on July 11th of 2017 as assent to the balance, the, ba the court should enter a judgment for the plaintiff for the reduced balance on the, uh, on the statement of last payment, which is $432.84. So for those reasons, we hope the court uh, enters a judgment for the defendant or uh, reduces the judgment to the $432. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you for those arguments. I am going to take this case under advisement and think about what you've both said. Ms. Yang, you'll be notified of my decision in the mail. Madam Clerk, my copy of withdrawal of limited appearance, please. Thank you. I'll, 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 I'll email it to the clerk's office email. Thank you. Thanks. I have a copy of that too, opposing counsel. Yeah, I'll, I'll email you. Thank you. Okay, end scene. <laughs> um, a question came up um, that I answered, sort uh, partially answered during uh, during the argument. Are arguments nitpicking the chain of title ever well received? Um, yeah. They, they can be very well received and it depends, I think, on the, the quality of the documents, you know, how incomplete the chain of title is um, and how good a job you as an advocate do of explaining the practical effect of the incomplete chain of title. So, um, you know, in a sense, it's the plaintiff saying to the court, as Colin, as Colin articulated, it's, it's just the plaintiff saying to the court, demonstrating through the documents that a bunch of some accounts were transferred from A to B and, and, and nothing in the chain of title references the specific dependent, defendant in this, in this case. So it's essentially the plaintiff saying, hey court, just trust us. We have, we have other identifying information 
um, about this defendant. It's she was probably in that account uh, in that transfer, even though it's not actually referenced there her name in that transfer. So, um, but but I think it does depend on how on how complete they are. Um, and we've seen lots of sort of variations of of this field data sheet that that does have our clients identifying information. Um, we've seen instances where there are two documents labeled as exhibit one in the packet of documents, one being this field data sheet. And obviously there can't be two documents that are both exhibit one. So, so one of them is not the actual exhibit one that was part of the, the, the assignment documents. Um, and that's pretty persuasive, right? If you bring that to a clerk, there can't, these both can't be exhibit one. So one of them is not. Um, so it, it just depends. I think it depends too a lot on the personality of the clerk. And we've been in enough of these sessions that we know which ones tend to really like fairness arguments and which ones tend to respond to legal arguments and which ones have poker games with opposing counsel. Um, so we can always strategize with y'all going into a hearing. Yeah, definitely. So that is the, I'm um, looking for more questions. That's the end of our plan programming. And I know we're coming right up against time, but we do still have a few more minutes if people have questions. Um, we'll, we'll give a little, a little bit of time to, for you to type them in. Um, and then of course you can always reach out to, um, to us if they come up later and um, you will get the slides through Doug. I'm also gonna just type in our email addresses to the chat here. Um, so you'll have that now. Hi, Nadia. <laughs> It's really funny um, not really knowing who's out there. <laughs> so you have Catherine calling in my emails there. It's just our first initial last name at vlpnet.org. Um, email us any last questions you have. Um, and thank you all so much for coming. Thank you. Thanks, Doug. Thank you, Doug. Thank you all very much. I hope you all have a great night. Thank you. Take care. Sure. Bye. Bye.